If one of the single people in our church or one of those who has uh, gone through the death of a spouse and now are widows came to you and said, should I get married? What would be your answer? And, and please, don't say it out loud because you might get in trouble with your spouse. What would be your answer if somebody came to you and said, should I get married? Well, I can hear some people saying, yes, marriage is great. You should definitely get married. I can hear other people saying, run! (laughs) No, don't get married. Marriage is hard. And then I could hear other people taking more of a middle position. I don't know. I don't know whether you should get married or not. I think that you would need to determine whether that's God's will for your life. And and then I could hear that single person or that widow saying, well, how do you know God's will for your life? Christians often use phrases like, God has a plan for your life. Or, I'm in the center of God's will. Or, uh, God has called me to X or Y. God has called me to Z. Well, if you're a person who is not sure about God's will for your life, then phrases like that sound like God's will is a needle in a haystack, that if you miss finding it, you're going to miss out on God's very special blessings for your entire life. Our sermon text addresses both of those issues. Our sermon text sort of began with a situation like the one that I presented to you this morning. The church at Corinth apparently asked Paul a question about singleness and marriage. Should single people get married? Should widows get married? And our sermon text answers the question today. Notice in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Nick read our sermon text. I'm not going to read the entire thing again. I will read all of it again as we go through it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, notice verse 25. Paul says, now concerning the betrothed. If you're using an ESV, the word is betrothed there. If you're using pretty much any other version The word is virgin. Now concerning virgins. The ESV uses betrothed because it's trying to be helpful for us to understand that what this particular text is talking about is not just the moral implications of virginity, but the specific relational implications of those who are currently single and are marriageable singles. And then, in verse 39, notice that it talks about one whose spouse has died. 
So widows. I want you to remember the context of where chapter 7 comes. In chapter 6 and 7, those of you who have been studying with us will remember that Paul has been addressing questions and issues concerning human sexuality, marriage, divorce, remarriage. Now, guess what's up? Singleness and widowhood. It's just a natural progression. Human sexuality, marriage, divorce, remarriage, singleness, and widowhood. It's been a very practical and interesting study. But remember where this question and these issues are coming from. The people in Corinth had a warped view of spirituality. The people in Corinth were suggesting that singleness and celibacy gave you a higher spiritual status with God. And so some of the Christians at the church in Corinth were divorcing their spouse so that they could be single and celibate and achieve this higher status with God. The last time we were together two weeks ago in chapter 7, verse 10 through 16, Paul said, stop divorcing your spouses. Christians, divorce is not for you. This is not what you should be doing. To those same people, singleness and celibacy is a higher spiritual status with God. This week, Paul is addressing those who are single and widowed. Verse 25 through 40, directly. You could hear some of them, these Christians at Corinth, asking, so I'm single, should I get married? Or should I stay single for the rest of my life? Widows, my spouse has passed, should I get married? Or should I remain single the rest of my life? What does God say about this? What are the spiritual implications of this? You could hear others, especially those who are betrothed. Betrothed is sort of like our concept of engagement. Except that back then, in that culture, we know that it was usually an arranged marriage between a girl's father and a boy who was coming knocking. Which, by the way, that's what they call it in South Africa. You come knocking. I thought that was great. And so these arranged marriages happen, and here are these Christian young ladies who hear that singleness and celibacy is the highest spiritual um, status with God, and they're saying, but I'm betrothed. What am I supposed to do now? Or maybe a young man who has entered into a betrothal with a, a, a girl in the, in, the, uh, in the city, and he's saying, I'm already betrothed to her. Should I go through with this marriage? You'll hear Paul addresses um, the masculine, the, the men in this a lot, because they were the ones who were making the decisions in this particular issue. He does talk to the girls, but a lot of times he's, he's speaking to the guys in this situation. And they're probably asking, should I go through with this marriage? Well, Paul answers their question about singleness 
and marriage very directly. Um, so in my sermon this morning, um, our sermon is actually going to be in two parts. The, the first part of my sermon is we're going to look at Paul's answer to the specific issue of singleness and widowhood, because that not only is it God's word in the direct uh, application of this text, but it applies to a number of people here in the room. And, and we want to serve you in this way. But if you're not single or widowed, if you're not looking at marriage, if you are currently married, I don't want you to go to sleep. I don't want you to you know, get on your phone and play some game. Part two of this uh, sermon this morning is actually this, this whole thing serves as a fascinating and helpful example of, of how Paul thinks about making major life decisions like marriage, like vocation, like moving, like retirement. And so as we go through, I want everybody in the room to be encouraged, uh, both in the specific application and in the broader application to how God calls us and helps us to make wise life choices. In the end, my prayer is that we will all understand that God calls us to glorify Him in our natural spheres of life. So let's look at this text. Nick already helpfully pointed out that there are two main parts of this text. Are you looking at the page there in the Bible? Notice that chapter uh, 7 verse 17 through 24 is a is a unit that we're going to call a universal principle and you'll notice there uh, those of you who have a handout I, I've actually put this structure on the handout for you you'll notice in verse 17 that he states the principle one time and then he gives two examples of this universal principle as an ethnic status, um, those people who were circumcised Jews and those people who were uncircumcised Gentiles. And then in verse 20, he states this universal principle again. Statement number two. Then in verse 21 through 23, notice he gives a second set of examples. This time, social status. Those people in the church who were free men, and those people in the church who were bond slaves. And then Paul ends this section, verse 24, by stating this universal principle one more time. Three times he hits the same principle over and over again. Verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24. Then, in the second section... Paul takes that universal principle that applies to ethnic status and to, to uh, social status, and he applies it to your relationship status. Verses 25 through 40. What does this universal principle say about your relationship status as single or married? See, relationship status is not just on your 1040 or on your Facebook page. So he applies it, verse 25 through 38, to the betrothed, marriageable singles, 
and verse 39 through 40, to widows. So we're going to begin with this universal principle. Let's read that together. I'll read it. You follow along. Verse 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. That's why we call it a universal principle. Then he gives examples. Verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Why? For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Verse 20, statement number two. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Here's another example, verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, verse 24, third time statement. Let's hammer this home. Read it with me. Verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. That's the universal principle that then Paul applies not to ethnic status or social status, but to relational status. Look at verse 25 and through 27. Now concerning the betrothed. I have no command from the Lord. In other words, Jesus didn't address this specifically in his teaching, but I give my judgment, my counsel, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, read the next phrase, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Do you see the application of the universal principle? It is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. In verse 17 through 24, Paul gives this universal principle. Here it is in a nutshell. Three times he says it. Remain in the condition you were called by God. Remain in the condition you were when God called you to Jesus Christ. Verse 17, verse 20, verse 24, and then he applies it to the relational status. Now, it would be really helpful for us to understand two main words here. First of all, the word calling. Are you called? Most people use this word, I have a calling, to talk about their vocation. I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to be a missionary. I'm called to be a mom. 
I'm called to be whatever. Here, Paul is not talking about a vocational calling. Eight different times, Paul uses the word calling to refer to the call of God that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the truth of the gospel, which results in an individual effectually being drawn to believe in Jesus Christ. This is the miracle of regeneration that Luke preached about last week from John chapter 3. It's the work of God that gives you new birth. When God called you out of your sin into Christ, God works the miracle of new birth in us before we respond by faith. We respond by faith and repentance because of God's work in us through the Spirit and through His gospel. So when he talks about calling here, remain in, look at verse 20, for example, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Paul says, so were you circumcised when you were called to Christ? Stay circumcised. Were you uncircumcised when you were called to Christ? Stay uncircumcised. Remain in that condition. Were you a bond slave when God called you? Then remain a bond slave. You don't have to change your next keyword condition. So when Paul uses the word condition here, what's he talking about? He's talking about your personal status, things like your ethnic status, your racial status. When he talks about your condition, he's talking about your social status, wherever you are in society, bond servant, free man. And he's talking about your relationship status, whether you are married or single. Here's the point, friends. Your Ethnic, social, and relationship status makes no difference to your spiritual status. It is inconsequential with God. Friends, do you hear that? It's not better or worse spiritually to be married or single. It's not better or worse to be black, white, Chinese. It's, it's not better or worse to be any of these things. Your race, your gender, your marital status is a beautiful thing, but it is not a spiritual status with God. He says so very directly. And imagine a Jew saying this. Verse 19. For neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. Imagine a Jew saying, circumcision counts for nothing. Zip, zero, zilch. Whoa! These are huge statements. Now, 
So verse 18 and 19, you don't need to change your condition. Verse 21, you don't need to be concerned about your condition. Verse 21b, if you have a desire and opportunity to change your condition, great. But the bottom line, your ethnic, social, uh, relational status has no spiritual status with God, and changing your status is not necessary, and it's not prohibited. Paul says, when you when God called you, you got a new status, a new identity in Christ. And in verse 17 through 24, he talks about if you were called when you were slave or if you're called when you're free, now you have a new identity in Christ. You are a freed man in Christ or you're a bondservant to Jesus. Friends, here's the gospel. Listen to me, everybody in the room. Here's the gospel. Your status in life isn't what brings you into a right status with God. God works through his spirit and his gospel to call you effectually to himself. And his work, not yours, his work changes your status. We all only had one status, sinner. But God's call effectually changes your status from sinner to saint. That's the gospel. And that new status, that new identity, changes everything. Verse 19, what's important is keeping the commandments of God. Verse 22, you're now a freedman of the Lord, a bondservant of Christ. And in other letters, Paul talks about how our new identity in Jesus levels the playing field. For example, Galatians chapter 3, listen to this. In Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Is it better to be male or female? Here's one thing we know. It's not a spiritual status with God. It is inconsequential to your spiritual status with God. We're one. We have a new identity in Jesus Christ. And because of that new identity, we now have a new purpose. Do you know what Christian freed men are supposed to do? They're supposed to glorify God as freed men. You know what Christian bond servants are supposed to do? They're supposed to glorify God as bond servant. You know what Christian men, women, African, Asian, American are supposed to do? All of us. We glorify God not by changing into something else, another nationality, but by glorifying God in the condition in which God has called us 
to himself. We glorify God in our natural spheres of life. You don't have to change, friends. So, Paul takes that universal principle and he applies it to the relationship status and he says, stop thinking that singleness is more spiritual than being married or being married is more spiritual than being single. It's not. But they did ask him a direct question. Paul, I'm single. Should I get married? Now, we don't know exactly what the question was. But Paul takes this opportunity to say something very important. Even though singleness and marriage is not a spiritual issue, it is a really important practical issue. (laughs) And so from 25 through 40, Paul actually takes the opportunity to give five reasons why he believes that singleness is better than marriage. Is it really? We we need to get something straight. It's not a spiritual status. It's not better spiritually for your relationship with God. But Paul says, I want to encourage everybody here who's single to remain single. Wow. Listen, we can't dilute Paul's emphasis on believing that singleness is better than marriage. You can't take this part of the Bible out. And and we shouldn't try to water it down Look at verse 28. For Paul, marriage is, quote, not a sin. Look at verse 38. The one who marries does well. But look at 37 and 38. Remaining single is what? Even better. You can't just make those words mean something else. So what is Paul talking about here? Why does Paul believe that Singleness is better than marriage. Well, John Piper preached a sermon on singleness from scriptures that include, from all of the scriptures that include this particular text. And let me just tell you how Piper kind of set this up. He said, God promises those of you who remain single in Christ blessings that are better than the blessings of marriage and children. And he calls you to display truths about Christ and his kingdom that shine more clearly through singleness than through marriage and child rearing. And then he stops and he says, take heed here. Take heed here lest you minimize what I'm saying and don't hear how radical it is. I'm not sentimentalizing singleness to make the unmarried feel good. I'm declaring the temporary and secondary nature of marriage and family over against the eternal and primary nature of the church. Marriage and family are temporary for this age. The church is forever. Paul gives five reasons why singleness is better 
than marriage. Look at verse 28. Reason number one. Singleness is better than marriage because of, quote, present distresses. Singleness is better than marriage because of present distresses. In other words, marriage adds difficulty to present distresses. Look at verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. The key here is bracketed between verse 26 and 28. Look at verse 26. He began this by saying, in view of the present distress. In view of the present distress. And then he ends it in verse 28 by saying, those who marry will have worldly troubles that I would like to spare you of. What is this present distress and these worldly troubles? that it would be just easier if a person was single instead of marriage, married. Well, some scholars suggest that uh, when Paul talks about the present distress, he's talking about the persecution of the church that had already begun in Corinth. But the fact is we have little evidence of persecution in the letters that, that we have from Paul to the church. So I'm not, I'm not convinced by that. Uh, Other scholars suggest that history tells us that there was a famine that gripped the region during this time. The present distress of a regional famine. It would be easier to remain single than to take on marriage. Okay, fine. I'm, I'm not a history scholar. I'm dependent on them. The fact is we're not sure what he means by present distress. But here's what we know. Whatever this distress is, is present. It's not future. Paul is not looking to the future. He's saying right here, right now, you guys are undergoing distress. And marriage is going to add to that distress by bringing in more, quote unquote, trouble. So while marriage is not a spiritual issue, it is a very practical issue. So you need to consider what is wise for your life based on your present circumstances. Singleness is better than marriage because of present distresses. Number two. In verse 29 through 31, he gives the second reason. Singleness is better than marriage because the time is short. The time is short. And what Paul emphasizes here is that marriage is temporary, not eternal. Let's read verse 29 through 31. This is what I mean, brothers. So he connects it to this present distress. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Obviously talking not about present distress, but about future events. And whatever age we're in right now is being condensed. In Paul's view, the time during this age is short. 
Verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Beginning of this section and the end of this section, verse 29, the appointed time is growing very short. And verse 31, the present form of the world is passing away. Paul is talking about life on earth and the coming of Jesus to set up his kingdom for all eternity. Paul says, the appointed time of the coming of Christ, I don't know when it's coming, but in his view, it's short. The time we have here is short. And here's what we know for sure. The form of this world that we are experiencing right now, it's fading, passing, vanishing away. And Paul is explaining that Christians are to live with a radical new relationship to this present world. Christians are to live with an eschatological view in mind. We should have an eternal perspective as we live daily life. So what's really important in life right now? Consider that if you're getting married. Live with an eternal perspective Because all of the things that are associated with this present world, like marriage, are temporary. Friends, that's what you have to hear, is that there's something more important than your marriage. There's something more important than your relationship status. It's the kingdom of God. So Paul says in snappy phrases, from now on, let's live as if. He's calling us to action. Because here's the truth. Our marriages are not ultimate. They're temporary. Do you know Jesus says that after the resurrection, that those who are in the kingdom are, quote, do not marry and are not given in marriage. My wife says that's why it's heaven. (laughs) She really does. The point is, marriage is for this life. It doesn't make it bad. It's just temporary. So Paul says, your marriages are not ultimate. Hey, friends, your troubles are not permanent. Your joys are not complete. Your possessions, they're not timeless. Your successes, they're not immortal. It's all life under the sun. It's not evil. It's not bad. It's just here and now, and it's temporary, not ultimate. There's something more important. And Paul says, number two, 
Singleness is better than marriage because the time is short. Number three. These are all connected, 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 just like a chain link, connected. Verse 32 through 35. Singleness is better than marriage because it, the the status, the relational status, the dynamic of being single allows for single-hearted devotion to the Lord in a way that marriage doesn't. Why? Because marriage divides your focus. Doesn't make it wrong, sin, or bad, but it's a reality. Marriage divides your focus. Paul's coming along and saying, you know what I want for you? Single-hearted devotion to the Lord. So if you're asking me, should I get married? Stay single. Because you can have undivided focus on the Lord. Read verse 32 through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Do you see the emphasis of this section, verse 32 through 35? At the beginning, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And at the end, he says, I want to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Anytime we think of the word anxiety, it's almost always a negative thing, isn't it? I feel so anxious. I'm loaded down with anxieties. Not so in the Bible. The word anxiety is used both positively and negatively in the same letter by the same author. It just means focus. It means a concern. So Paul says there's nobody who is as deeply anxious about you as Timothy. Does that mean Timothy's going, oh, I don't know what to do about the church at Philippi. Oh, no, he's saying he loves you. He's concerned about you. He, he is focused on you. Same letter. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but take everything to the Lord in prayer. Is Paul saying, don't love anything? Don't focus on anything? No, he's saying, don't worry about it. Don't be overly concerned. So the context dictates whether the word anxiety is a good thing or a bad thing. Being anxious about the things of your spouse is no worse or better than being 
anxious about the things of the Lord. It's not a sin. He's just saying you're focused on your spouse. You're devoted to your spouse. But the person who's single has what? The advantage of being single-heartedly devoted to the Lord. And for that reason, Paul says, singleness is better than marriage because it allows for single-hearted devotion to the Lord. But marriage divides your focus. Reason number four. Verse 36 through 38. Paul explains that singleness is better than marriage if... You can handle your natural sexual passions. But clearly, God has given us marriage as the normal design for human sexuality. Now, that does not mean that every married person is some kind of of out-of-control person, not at all. He's just saying, singleness ain't for everybody. And let's reference previous things just a few paragraphs ago when he talked about those who are called and gifted to singleness. So let's not divorce this from the text that surrounds it. Paul is not arguing against marriage. He's just looking all of the single people in the eye and saying, singleness is better for these five reasons. Number four, If you can handle your sexual passions, then singleness is better for you. Look at verse 36 through 38. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So, he who marries his betrothed does well. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. Singleness is better than marriage if you can handle your sexual passions. If you can't and you're engaged, get married. If you can, you can break off the marriage, keep her as your betrothed. I don't know what all of that means contractually, but if you can, great. Okay, that is the way I interpret this. That's the way the ESV is interpreting. But let me tell you, friends. The NASB, the King James Version, and a lot of other versions don't make this about the fiancé. They make it about the father. So if you're reading the NASB or King James or New King James, then what it says is if you have a daughter who is engaged and you're concerned about this, then here's, here's what you should do about your daughter. The problem is is when he's talking about, look at verse 36, passions are strong, and then verse 37, having his desire under control, 
everything Paul's been talking about, about human sexuality, has used those same words. So it's really weird to be thinking about the father in this situation, and it's easier, and I happen to agree with the ESV, who takes this as talking to and about the fiancé, not the father. Bottom line, singleness is better than marriage if you can handle your passions, but clearly marriage is good. It's not sin. And it's God's design for human sexuality. Number five. Paul switches to the widows. And he talks to those who are single currently because of the unfortunate death of their spouse. And let's be reminded one more time that usually, just very often, when we think about widows or widowers, we think about people in their 60s, 70s, 80s because that's really normal in our culture. But then it would have been very common for a a widow to be a 20-something-year-old girl or a widower to be a 30-year-old man. And so um, I think we have to kind of loosen our grip on what a widow is and a widow-widower. But nonetheless, number five, Paul says, singleness is better than marriage. But you're free to marry a Christian if that's what you want. You're free, friend. You're free to marry. If you want to get married, get married. It's a beautiful thing. Read verse 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. It's really important. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment... She is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. And my wife giggled when Nick read that earlier. I think she's happier if she'll stay single. And all the ladies probably say, amen, get rid of the beast. But the point is you're free to do as you wish. Marriage is a beautiful creation of God. And you're free to get married only in the Lord. Please note verse 39 at the beginning. Marriage is also a bond for life, and only God breaks that bond by death. Christians should not break that bond. What God put together, don't let any man separate. But when that bond is broken, and I can only imagine how difficult that is, if you have a desire to be married, you're free to get married. Find another Christian. Marry in the Lord. And do what you want. Paul gives five reasons why singleness is better than marriage. And at the end, he says, But you're free to get married if you want to. Totally fine. Married people don't hear that as you're less spiritual than those people like Paul and Jesus. Of course, Jesus, but just because they're single. (laughs) My pastor said that we're not less than, uh, anyway. In some sense, let's not go down that true. We have the righteousness of Christ. We're right where he is because of grace and faith, but anyway. You're 
marital status, your relationship status is not your spiritual status. Please don't let that cause you to feel that way. Um, but singleness does give special opportunities. So I just want to take just another minute or two and, and just broaden this so that we can use this as an example of what is an amazing way Paul gives counsel. This text is fascinating. When Paul tackles the issue of whether those who are single and widows should get married, he talks about six different realities. And and so maybe you're here this morning and you're not considering marriage right now, but there are plenty of other life decisions going on in this room right now. There, There are people like our own Eleanor who are thinking about college and career. There's, there's Noah wondering whether he should serve with Young Life or, or go pro and make millions in some sport, right? It's massive life decisions. There's Greta over here who is, is wondering which one of the 42 C-level positions that are constantly being offered to her she should take. And then there's Jill who's wondering when would be the right time and can I retire? Massive decisions. What's God's will for me in that area? Talk to the Ricks or the Fizekases or the Hardings and ask them how, how they made the decision of whether they should move closer to their kids and grandkids or not. And then talk to Rob and Caroline who are deciding whether they should leave here and move to South Carolina and take care of his mom. Massive life decisions. What's right? What's wrong? What is God's will? Parents, which school should we choose for our kids? Do we send them to school? Do we keep them at home for school? Parents of older kids, how do I counsel my kids to help them make these massive life decisions? Well, Paul bases his counsel on six realities. Write them down. Go back and look at them later. I think they are awesome. Number one, Paul says, consider this decision in light of your identity in Christ. Whether you homeschool or public school does not make your status with Christ. Whether you work or retire does not determine your status with Christ, but it does matter in the decision. So ask yourself, is this particular decision congruent with my new identity in Christ? What would God have me to do as a Christian? And maybe more specifically, what does God's word say about it? Because here Paul says, I don't have any specific teaching about Jesus, but I'm about to give you my counsel, which is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Number two. The second reality, he says, consider this decision in the light of your present circumstances. What's going on in your life really matters. And some things just add to the chaos. You don't need to add to your chaos. You can lighten your load sometimes. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you have to do it. Just because you might be the best at it doesn't mean that you have to take on more stress just to be the one who does it. So if you're choosing between two good things, then consider your personal or your present circumstances. Number three, 
consider this decision in light of an eternal perspective. Whatever it is that you're facing, just remember, your life is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And so every day, Christian, we want to redeem the time. We want to do everything we can to live our life with eternity in view. That matters for marriage and singleness. That matters for your job. That matters for every aspect of your life. Number four, consider this decision in light of your devotion to the Lord. What Paul is saying here in two different places, get this, is that singleness and simpleness allows for greater freedom to invest yourself and your resources in that which is eternal rather than that which is temporary. Whether you're married or single, you can live your life with an eternal perspective devoted to the Lord. And there are things that will divide your devotion to the Lord. And if you can minimize those, do it. That's how Paul lived his life. Brothers, I don't consider myself to have, uh, that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in God, in Christ Jesus. One thing. Number five, whatever decision you're facing, consider that decision in light of your human nature. God made you human, and you're only human. You can't do everything. Some of us are reading You're Only Human by Kelly Capick, or Capick. And we worship God, Capick says, as he made us dignified, purposeful, vulnerable, finite creatures. We don't apologize for our creaturely needs and dependence on others. For we discover that this is how God made us, and it is very good. So when Paul says, you need to consider your natural passions, you need to consider your human makeup in this decision, we can apply that to a lot of different areas, can't we? But so often we view our humanness as sinfulness. It's not. God made you a finite being. Consider it as you make decisions. And then finally, number six, consider this decision in light of, are you ready? Here's a pastor about to stand up here and include it in a 54-minute sermon saying, you know what, Christian? You can do what you want. Isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't it be awesome if God's will was as simple as this? Love God with your whole heart. Obey God's word and then do what you want. You want to get married? Go after it. You want to take that promotion, take that job? If it's not right or wrong, prohibited in God's word, do what you want. Kevin DeYoung's small book called Just Do Something is my favorite gift to give graduates 
because he says this is a liberating approach to finding God's will, or, subtitled, How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, Liver Shivers, and Writing in the Sky, etc. Love God with your whole heart. Obey God's word, and then do what you want. That's how Paul ends this discussion, doesn't he? If you want to get married, get married. But if you're asking me, I say stay single and give your life to the Lord. Okay, friends. It's God's word. It's good. Let's pray. Lord, to those of us who are single and widowed, we pray that your word would give uh, specific instruction and help. Um, For those of us who are married, I pray that your word would have broad implications uh, to show us how we can all, married or single, doesn't matter, how we can all glorify you in our natural sphere. Thank you that our ethnic, social, and relational status is inconsequential when it comes to our spiritual status. Thank you that that is fixed and secure forever because of the it-is-finished work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would glorify yourself in every one of us where we live, where we work, by how we live and how we work. Thank you. Thank you for your calling in Jesus' name. Amen.